Welcome to the New History Podcast. This is episode one. Thank you for listening. As you might guess, we are a history podcast hosted by myself, Alex, uh, as well as Lily. Hi. And we're joined by a guest today, as we aim to be for the rest of our episodes. Today, we've got James. All right. So we're a history podcast with a fairly casual style, just going to be chatting about a certain topic. Uh, what's our topic for the first episode, Lily? So um, we are actually going to be starting with something that I think is probably hitting everyone everywhere, and it's how this whole pandemic, COVID-19, has impacted history in particular, the, the humanities as a whole, and you know how things are essentially going in, in museums, academia, and, and whatnot. So that's what we're talking about today. I think something fairly familiar to everyone. And we all have been personally affected in our personal and professional lives by the pandemic um, mm. from that perspective as well. So we all have different views on the subject. Um, I guess probably the overarching theme is quite obvious. You know, there has been a severe impact and this is obviously being considered. Um, but as it's it's a common topic, um, it's, it's something good to start with. Another reason why we wanted to start with this is because um, we've, for those of you who may know about us before, we've just done a massive rebrand on our, um, I guess, uh, web and everything else. Uh, we used to be w WU History and we've uh, rebrand because, well, we've kind of moved away from our origins. You know, the, the blog originally started in 2000 and goodness, 10. So we've been nearly at it for what, 11 years nearly? Um, it will be 11 years mm. soon. Um, so we, we needed to move away and rethink the style of things that we were doing. We started this entire enterprise when we were undergraduate students at the university, most of us at Winchester, some others elsewhere. Um, and obviously we all have moved on. Um, our styles have changed. Our topics have changed. The team has changed a lot. So yeah. we needed a whole new rebranding. And this whole idea of new history, um, it's it's essentially that. Uh, it was very much inspired by the new histories of, you know, if, if any of you are interested in historiography, this was a big movement sort of in the later mid half of the 20th century. And, and it was really about, you know, moving things in a different direction, um, revisiting old topics, but with new light. Um, it, it really has its foundations in revisionism, but also, you know, in, in trying to provide a new light insight and whatnot and dig deeper into things that maybe have been a bit forgotten, which has always been the general lines that we've taken um, with with our blog post. You know, we haven't always yeah, just talked about the mainstream things. We've talked about things that maybe we were interested in and maybe three other people in the world, you know, maybe not the most popular stuff, but yeah. it's really about bringing that sort of uh, different element to it um, and making it our own. So that's, that's kind of where we're approaching this and also why we want it to be sort of casual and relaxed. We don't want it to be... Uh, without wanting to sound, you know, polemic here, like a very serious seminar of doom where a bunch of academics mm -hmm. are sitting down talking blah, 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 and no one yeah, really, yeah. you know, having air to breathe. Um, I think I think we all are very um, happy with having open discussions about history, and we think it's something that should be discussed by everyone and the humanities particularly. You know, they're, they're in such a low moment at the moment. Um, that they need a bit of a pickup. Um, and that's everyone's responsibility. I think that's probably the view yeah. everyone here has. So that's kind of what we're trying to do. Um, and podcast, well, we've been writing for many years. 
um, time gets short as we as we all have very busy commitments, but also, you know, new media and whatnot is really allowing us to actually have conversations with people all over the country and all over the world about historical subjects. And I, I think that ability to actually bring people from wherever to talk about things that are relevant for us today is really important. You know, the, the more connected we are, the better it's going to be for these discussions rather than just having them focused down in one particular little area or one particular geographic um, area and just giving those views. So hopefully we are, we're going to bring something diverse and interesting and casual. Yeah. So don't, you know, don't expect sort of very high nuanced um, discussions in that sense there will be interesting topics there will be you know a lot of stuff to chew on but we're not trying to be highbrow sort of drinking tea with our fingers you know our little pinkies out yeah. or anything like that that's not gonna be us and we are, are not there any highbrow <laughs> anyway <laughs> well some people try really hard you know um yeah. But yeah, and we're not always necessarily going to be politically correct. Um, we're just going to, you know, talk about things the way we see them. Um, obviously, we're not going to be in, engaging in any type of offensive content or anything like that. But if we are not in agreement with a particular mainstream trend or something like that, we will be very clear about it and we will not be apologizing for that. So, you know, here here is the controversy. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially what, much. no, but it's it's <laughs> what half of our careers are based on anyway. So that's that's what we do. And speaking about our careers, um, some of you may know us already. Some of us may not. So I will start with myself. Um, I'm Lily. I am literally finishing my PhD, just sorting out my corrections now, uh, hopefully done by the end of the year um, in, well, many things. Uh, the, the actual topic of my PhD is the representation of uh, Viking women in the visual media, specifically comics and TV series, and what that says about gender, culture, and identity. Um, but I guess, traditionally speaking, I am a medievalist with a very heavy background in culture. Cultural studies, I would say, is my thing, particularly art, architecture, literature, that sort of stuff. Um, and I've also developed a very keen interest in food, purely because of self-absorbed reasons. But, <laughs> but of course, to me, food is something that speaks about everyone. It's relatable to everybody. And it does involve history, you know. So many aspects of our daily life have to do with our diets. And our diets have to do with the economy and with the environment and with our society. So it's, it's something I'm sort of developing on the side. Um, from an academic point of view, apart from being finishing my PhD, I've been involved in many projects. I will not bother you with them, but I've um, recently published an article in the Vikings TV series anthology about motherhood and the Vikings. I've written about the Vikings in different contexts here and there. Um, I've also written a lot about comic books. I've written about Jessica Jones in the anthology for Jessica Jones. I'm waiting publication that I cannot really disclose because of these things cannot be disclosed on some other comics and topics. But um, that's that's usually what I deal with. I deal with gender studies, culture studies, um, historiography a lot, and kind of anything that I can get my fingers on. You know, I, I, I say I'm a medievalist because that's my background training, but realistically, you know, I I like anything that is between prehistory and the 21st century. That's at the end of the day what I work with. So I'm, I'm a bit of a globalist, I guess, <laughs> a globalist cultural historian um, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's 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 me um obviously i've been writing um the blog for well since the beginning um yep. and 
I've been contributing to a few other bits like the um, Royal Network Studies uh, peer review publication um, that you can all go and, and have a look. They're a lovely bunch, you know, go, go say hi to them. They're nice people. I used to direct a Spanish magazine about history in back in Spain, Revista Medieval, and I've contributed in a few other bits and bobs. So that's that's what I do, bits and bobs. I'm sure you could go on. Yes, I will not bother you with the credentials. It's not necessary, but that's just so you know what sort of is my perspective on things. Yeah. So Brilliant. over to well, uh, yeah, uh, I, my list isn't anywhere near as long as Lily's. Um, I studied history and archaeology at Winchester, um, specifically um, ancient classical and medieval studies. The degree was called, which I I just went for it because I liked the title basically. Um, that's that's my sort of period. I'm not a huge fan of modern history, apart from maybe when it comes to war. Um, so yeah, my my particular topic is the history of warfare, but I don't just focus on that. Um, I also do, um, you know, a lot of stuff on uh, like material culture. So mm. I did a bit of archaeology, and from that, I've kind of done my own sort of experimental archaeology things on the side. I like to make quite a lot of stuff starting off mainly with stuff related to warfare so like shields and <laughs> weapons and things but uh yeah <laughs> but yeah i've uh you know recently gotten into various crafts and things all sort of historically themed and inspired um and uh yeah uh, apart from that i've been working in a few different museums um volunteered for about three years in the national army museum in the uk um I'm currently working in a museum that has an 18th century water mill, and I am the miller there, which is quite a unique job. Um, pretty cool job. Quite interesting, yeah. So that's pretty much me up to this point. Um, so what about you, James? Um, yeah, well, uh, uh, again, my my history isn't going to be as, as long as Lily's by any extent. Um, I did uh, ancient history and archaeology down at Exeter. Um, I did a master's down there as well, um, uh, classical civilization and ancient history. Um, I worked in the May Rose Museum for uh, a couple of years um, until I started on a part-time PhD myself, um, looking at um, gladiators in popular uh, modern visual culture, specifically video games, um, and what it said about classical reception in, in, in modern in modern culture. Uh, I'm only in the first couple of years of it, and it's part-time, so it's still got another four years left. Um, so <laughs> that's, still, that's still going away. Um, but I'm also um, uh, an active reenactor of the Roman period. Um, more specifically, military and, and gladiator combat as well. Um, hence why I'm also looking at gladiators in, in video games. Um, and I've been doing that for about 10 years now um, myself. Um, so it, it so I have, a, I have a bit of a varied side of it. I've, it's, it's quite a nice advantage being able to bring a reenactment background to uh, more kind of academic contexts. Oh yeah, definitely. As well, yeah. What's the name of the group? Uh, the group's called uh, Legio Secunda Augusta, um, or we call ourselves um, Second Augustan. 
Nice. It's yeah, it's it's based on the uh, one of the legions that invaded Britain in uh, AD 43, and it's the one that came along. Um, it's the legion that kind of came along down the south coast and into into the southwest. And because our mm. group is based in Portsmouth, it seemed quite um, quite yeah. well suited. To, and you're to still here that. after all this time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Excellent. that's our background in terms of history. So how has uh, how has the pandemic affected all that? <laughs> I mean, how hasn't it affected oh, all that? I mean, I think yeah, I think um, I would like it if you two started first because obviously you felt this perhaps more firsthand in in the flesh. I mean, than me because obviously Alex, you're working in a museum, and James, your entire reenactment schedule has been well affected by all of this so if you could give people a bit more of, of a feeling of how that has a direct impact in these type of institutions and hobbies and things related to history then I'll, I'll tell you how it's impacted things on my end um yeah. but yeah how how is that going in, in the museum what sort of effects has it had directly Alex um well my museum's kind of in a slightly different situation than most it, it mm. is a council uh run museum so it's not quite as precarious as you know some of the, the privately owned ones or, or other charities and things like that um i'm thinking of a couple of others that i've worked at before that had very small budgets and just a few trustees i kind of can't imagine how badly they're faring at the moment um uh, but with with mine our jobs are all pretty secure for now uh and you know, things are kind of going along. It's very quiet right now, obviously. Um, at the beginning of the the lockdown uh, earlier this year, about six months ago now, um, the time has flown. Uh, we were very busy, actually, because, like I said, we are a, a historical water mill, uh, and I'm the, the miller there, uh, the only uh, full-time miller. Um, we had to furlough all of our casual staff. So... I alone, for the most part, um, was filling a lot of flower orders uh, when uh, a lot of panic buying happened. So there was quite a busy flurry right at the start of the pandemic there, um, where our old 18th century water mill, uh, which still pretty much is functioning in its original form with a lot of original parts, um, was getting through five times the amount of uh, milling it would usually yeah, do ridiculous. Um, but it was handling it fine um it was mostly me the the human element <laughs> down because uh, i physically couldn't uh keep up with it um so just shows that you know this technology which in the 18th century they were still using the same technology that the romans used um it, it still still serves its purpose today um and and it's perfectly Perfectly capable uh, uh, producing enough flour to feed the masses, it seems. Particularly um, during a pandemic. <laughs> yes, yeah. So that was interesting. Um, there was a good solid couple of months there where it was just flat out. Um, and then slowly things started to calm down. You know, supermarkets and things started stocking shelves better and, and a lot more. Everything was a bit more prepared. Um, supply chains weren't weren't struggling quite as much. Um, and since then, we've slowly gotten quieter and quieter. Um, for a period over the summer, there was very little going on at our, our museum. Um, 
we were totally closed to the public entirely, um, apart from just having our shop open to sell flour um, and doing a few deliveries to local bakeries and things like that, um, but no visitors. Um, and then in August, I think it was, uh, restrictions started to lift here. Uh, and it was very tricky for us even then because we're quite a small, cramped little old building. Mm. Um, it's essentially just the Miller's house has been turned into a, a local museum for the area, um, which is in uh, near Wellin and Hatfield in Hertfordshire. Um, so we still haven't really opened the museum at all. All we've done is open the mill side of things, which is a little bit more spacious. And I'm just giving um, about hour long tours pre-booked, um, like I believe most museums are do everything, doing yeah. everything booked mm. and time slots now just to space people apart. But even then, we've had a handful of people doing that, um, but it's it's a lot quieter than usual. And especially now that the season is sort of turning and things are getting quieter, restrictions are coming in a little bit more tightly in other parts of the country than they might do here. It's uh, it's getting very quiet again now, and we don't have the, the the crazy flower sales to even keep us busy there. So me personally, it's quite dead. I'm still going into work, and I pretty much work alone anyway. So not a huge change for me. It's just like a, it's as if it's the middle of winter and there's no one around. It just for most of the year, unfortunately. Um, but for other people that I can talk about that I work with, um, like I said, most of our casual, all of our casual staff really have uh, been put on furlough. Um, and now that the furlough scheme is lifting uh, as, yep. as we speak, it's currently, we're recording this in October, 2020. If anyone in the future wants to know, hope it's, <laughs> it's all right over there. Um, uh, but it's currently lifting and uh, the council that, that we're a part of has not decided to um, bring in any other support for, for workers who, who we just don't need or, or can't work. Um, so the people that are casual staff, they don't have any, you know, solid work hours that they can rely on. And unfortunately, that's kind of, for the most part, how a lot of museums seem to run. There's not a lot of full-time uh, uh, salaried staff um these days a lot of things are very casual and there's a lot of volunteers um yeah. currently we're not having any volunteers to, to help with things there's not a huge need for it right now um just with how quiet everything is so it's it's quite sad for a lot of those people you know a lot of the casual staff are kind of like the volunteers they, they're not doing it necessarily to earn a living some of them are which is even worse um but uh it's it's not great um so hopefully those people are going to be okay um you know currently working for the council we've not lost any jobs but uh there are a lot of other places in in the museum sector that i know are announcing um some pretty hefty cutbacks on 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 a lot of their jobs they um, are and and not so, just yeah. those jobs but all sorts of resources i was recently up north in um cumbria um before the whole lockdown and all of that started there and I visited a couple of sites that are currently being managed by English Heritage, which for those mm. of you who may not be from the UK is one of the largest um, 
heritage charities that take over a lot of these sites. One of them is English Heritage, the other one is the National Trust. Um, mm. The National Trust has a few more funds than English Heritage, or at least it's giving me that impression with the vast majority of their sites. They always have nicer gift shops and they have <laughs> a few more things in there. Um, English Heritage is usually... Um, taking care of a lot of uh, buildings in, in ruins, you know, castle ruins, uh, ruined abbeys, you know, things like that. Um, it was the case of one of the sites that I saw, um, Lanercos Priory, um, which, I mean, admittedly, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a priory in ruins. There is not a lot there to see other than the material remains, but there was, you know, a certain feeling of, deserted forever yes it was raining you know typical english weather in autumn all of that blah blah it was early in the morning whatnot but it it did feel very very forgotten um and it was even the case when then i went to the second site which was um in in hadrian's wall um wall fort you know you would think something like that you know an icon of english history uh, which, yeah. sure, you don't need to go into the fort to see Hadrian's Wall. You know, there is lots of bits of the wall that go from side to side to the country. But, you know, this one is the best preserved fort in the entirety of the actual trail. Um, you know, the, it's, a, it's a place that has good facilities. The museum is really cute, really informative, very, very child-friendly. I was really impressed in that sense. Um, the person at the front gave me the impression that potentially she must have been a guide of some sorts not during the pandemic, now obviously confined to welcome this sort of saying, hi, here is how you do things, here you go. Um, but even, you know, the tea room had to be slashed in half. They, they were only allowed to sit so many people in there. The, everything was, you know, so cut down um, that it was really sad seeing something so magnificent and so important that has been there for thousands of years, um, sort of just left there to soak in the rain mm. um, with just me walking around taking pictures. Um, so. You know, particularly concerning that this time of the year is quite popular up there in the Lake District and in the north of England because it's kind of like a holiday destination and and whatnot. Um, so it did feel, you know, sad. And and there was stuff, you know. Thankfully, I was I was happy to see as many people working there as I did, which gave me a little bit of hope. But like I said, you know, this is an important site within a fairly large organization. Um, it's it's not something that yeah. can be expected of many other places. And I've seen that. In some local areas um, where I live in, in Southampton, the vast majority of the small museums are closed to the public still, um, or the timetables to go in are so, so restrictive that it's it's almost impossible for these sites to even open and for people right. to go and visit. It's the same in Winchester. I was there during the summer and, you know, Winchester in the summer is, oh my goodness, you can't walk through the high street, you know, it's, it's impossible to walk through the high street. And although we're still busy, you know, places like the cathedral, Winchester Cathedral, again, another icon of architecture, not even a queue, um, places that are, you know, smaller, completely deserted, closed down with just signs pointing at, you know, we will come back eventually, hopefully, maybe soon. So it is having a, a really, really big impact in, in the museum and sort of heritage industry, because obviously tourism is being affected, not just international tourism, which obviously has had a huge huge impact this whole COVID thing not stopping people from going around the world but you know local tourism as well because you know if 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 the smaller a site is the less resources they have available like Alex was saying a lot of them are owned by the local councils some others are owned by private 
you know, um, organizations. And you can never t- really tell which one is going to be in a better position because yeah. particularly in the last few years, at least here in the UK, the humanities have suffered such a big cut in their budget. So the local yeah. councils don't have money to sustain a lot of these, um, you know, little museums and uh, sites and and the same from you know yeah. private perspectives. I mean, as an example of that yeah. like just even just today i was hearing uh, my manager at the museum was uh, on the phone with a with a higher up in the council um and he was basically saying uh, to my manager like uh, okay uh, the there is the job retention scheme and things like that but unfortunately we're not going to do anything for your casual staff we can't bring them back yeah uh, basically um you know they're 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 already thinking about where they can save uh, obviously yeah and obviously you know we are all thinking about people's jobs all of that 100 percent. i'm not not trying to undermine and please don't take me wrong but you know what everyone out there needs to remember is that a lot of these places are not free there is an entrance charge for a reason that reason is not to skin you dead it's because yeah. these places need money to carry on because you know there is an upkeep there is a maintenance it's not just to pay the staff which actually improve your visit it is to keep the place going and you know with so many days of being closed down and no people checking on these buildings whatnot you don't know the amount of you know structural damage they could have suffered we've had a pretty nasty you know beginning of the sort of autumn here in some places of the country we did have some very severe storms during the summer and we do know that some places have been severely damaged during this process but nothing could be done because of the pandemic so we are looking at a very big impact both from a you know human perspective in the sense of the people who work in these sites the people who are delivering history and heritage to the visitors but also the sites themselves not just because of potential damage Mm. but the upkeep you know some of these places may have well to close down and never reopen and that's only going to have an impact into the future generations that are simply not going to be able to enjoy and learn about this you know in the years to come mm-hmm. well while we're still on museums i do have a couple more yeah uh examples because uh, i was uh, i was recently visiting a couple of places um which aren't doing too badly and i, I think what you mentioned with weather like obviously when it's a nice sunny day things mm. look a bit brighter literally yeah. and, and figuratively um so uh, just last week uh, we had some nice weather and i was in uh, dorset um so i went to a national trust site which is corf castle um and that wasn't doing too badly uh, you know it sounds like it was doing better than the places you went um yeah. but Corp thankfully because it's, it's quite open destination as well yeah yeah it, it's basically because it's a, a ruin of a castle there's no indoor area at all really um so it's all pretty f- much functioning as normal um the only thing was that they did have a sort of kind of a recommended uh thing that you pre pre-book your visit uh, and you get a half an hour time slot which we didn't make on time um but because it's kind of a large open air site they didn't really yeah. mind so i think in general they're sort of keeping an eye on the numbers of people if it was like a really busy weekend they might be a bit more strict with that but you know on a normal day like we went it it wasn't a big issue no. um so you know it really depends on the site some places are going to do better than others um so for another example for an indoor museum i also went to the um the tank museum in bovington um just last week as well um and you know indoor things can function basically as long as people are distancing and wearing a mask and and all that um and in that museum you know you can imagine it's a tank museum 
the largest one in the country um it needs a lot of space already so it's yeah. got a lot of space yeah of uh, it's it's a huge museum um so it it wasn't super dead but it wasn't terribly busy i'm sure it gets busier um but again yeah we had to book and we had like an hour slot i think you know once we were there we could spend as long as we wanted but um just i think so that they spread people out throughout the day yeah. um but uh yeah that pretty much functions as normal just needed to have a mask on which was you know a bit annoying but it's fine um so again yeah kind of a museum like that is is probably still suffering from a lack of of funds from the the number of visitors it's it's just not getting um i know specifically with that museum they've kind of been pushing their their merchandise online a lot more whereas they yeah. didn't really do that before they had like a handful of things online but now they've got they've got quite a large gift shop there with quite a lot of stuff you know uh, models and all sorts of things so quite you know high price items um so they're selling those online more and pushing them a lot more to try and get more funds in um and looking for a lot more kind of like crowdfunding as well um i know they actually even mm. for a large national museum like that they have a patreon page yeah um places do these days for that yeah <laughs> so i'm sure they're getting a, a financial hit from just a lack of visitors and mm. if lockdown comes in properly again then they can't have any visitors but thankfully them being kind of a spacious museum they're nowhere near as as having as many problems as we are with the museum i work at which is tiny and we can't have anyone in because it's just a few small rooms basically and as soon as you've got one person in that room you can't be in the same room because it's not two meters big so um yeah uh, it's kind of kind of tricky yeah so on, on that front james you have been as far as i'm aware going back down to the mary rose am i correct uh yeah um i'll i'm starting to do some um voluntary tour guiding down there and i went down there um on saturday for kind of like an induction kind of thing but it was mostly a uh walk around the museum and again i've already worked there so i know the place like the back of my hand but it was a walk around there with all the new covid restrictions um mm. and and measures that they had to that they've had to put in place um mm. and it, actually it, it the may rose isn't in a bad position either um it's part of um a, a bigger complex called portsmouth historic dockyard um obviously down in down in portsmouth um and they're on um navy owned land anyway um and they actually le they've, they've leased part of the land from the navy um so they 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 they've got that kind of i guess site security um yeah but the the main thing is there's there's a quite a few attractions down there so, um you've got hms victory down there you know which is again an iconic um uh an, an iconic thing from 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 english history uh hms warrior as well there's um um the world war one submarine across the bay in gosport um so there's a few things and obviously you've got the may rose museum so it's part of this other complex that they um they work together in a way they've been working together to to help survive this as well um in the extent that you can buy different level tickets 
to enter and the main one i think it's called ultimate explorer or something and it gives you a year's access to all the sites in the dockyard um and the year's access is is a big selling point particularly at the moment it's always been popular because it means that you can just go back whenever and, and you're not you're not tied to having to try and look around everything in a day mm. you know you can you can come back at different parts of the year but particularly now um as well if there is another uh, whether lo- local lockdown or national lockdown or anything else, you know that ticket will still be valid. Mm. Um, so it, it, it mm. gives it's, it's it's offering. It's a good investment. It's actually offering it? more flexibility now than than it was before, before arguably. Yeah. Um, but the um, yeah, so so the museum's in 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 not in a bad state that way. It's it's also uh, re- received a grant from the um, lottery fund as well, the Lottery Heritage Fund um so that that's that's helped out things and and i think touch wood has actually managed to keep um its staff on um and now that it's open again properly to the public and, and it's actually got the income coming back in uh it's able to actually i don't don't think they've actually lost anyone they obviously furloughed their staff and everything but i don't think they're actually they're, I don't think they're actually looking at um uh having to to lose anyone permanently Mm. Uh, it's also very heavily reliant on volunteers as well, and the volunteers are still able to go in. Obviously, there's they've put in new measures, so they've, they've um, where there was one big staff, and they've kind of um, made a separate staff room, so there's not so many people in one in one room, um, and and you still try and follow social distancing, um, as as well. Uh, but the main thing is for the, the dockyard uh has as you've now got time to tickets um to which you need to visit dockyard and they've now they've now um limited how many people can can be can be in um at any one time and i think it's about 250 people in the whole in the whole complex Hmm. um and this is a you know this is a this is a place where um you know, you could have 250 people in one attraction. So, the, you know, the numbers are huge, uh, 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 very vastly restricted. Um, and and this, this has been quite, if this is a big part. And and the fact that May Rose as well, I don't know, I don't know if you've, if you've been or anything yeah. or if anyone else has been, but it's, it's basically a one-way system. Yeah, yeah, it, it was already a one-way system yeah. before all of and this, again, which that, I suspect that, really helped. It it does um, it 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 does. Obviously, when you get to like some of the end galleries and and they are they've got different um, exhibition cases, you can obviously kind of wander around. There's like a rough general kind of flow that they want you to go, but you can obviously like go from different um, exhibition cabinets to another. There's no set kind of um, there's no there's no set system in place for that. But the, the museum overall has this one way system. Um, and that's been that's been helping a lot as well. Not only, um, not 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 only for kind of the obvious safety issues, but but um, just just helping managing the flow of people as well to make sure that that because the museums obviously cut down its capacity a lot to make sure that people are now um, that it's a very flowing system, um, so people can see everything what they want and they they don't feel rushed or anything. But they're still out in about an hour, an hour and a half or so. So it's letting it, it it's continual, it's continual refreshment, basically visitors, mm. which is which is very healthy for it. Um, 
they've obviously put on in a lot of um a lot of uh new safety measures as well and they they've got things like uh sanitizing sanitizer dispensers um scattered around the whole of whole of the museum uh staff mm. and volunteers all wear face masks um and and they they've started doing these uh they've started doing these organized tours as well um which is quite a nice way of again controlling crowds controlling the movement as well um mm-hmm. so they they've done a lot of they've done a lot of good measures and and it is showing because um they rely quite heavily on um uh the um the review site what's it called TripAdvisor that's it TripAdvisor um they rely heavily on TripAdvisor and they've already been getting positive reviews of people saying that they actually feel safe when they walk into a into a museum because of all oh, okay. the new covid measures and everything yeah so it it is reflecting it is it is it is being reflected on on their efforts um mm-hmm. so that that's that's been good but um but yeah it it it's definitely a weird a weird time to be going into into museums and and taking part in it as well as as i said i had i had a kind of a new health and safety tour around as well on the volunteer side of things um but it was dominated completely by by new, the new covid measures Mm. um and in the yeah and and uh, i know of other places as well i i know um fishbourne roman palace very well um and and the staff down there and and there was a fear, there was a fear of the um of of fishbourne having to uh almost permanently close there was a fear of it Mm. um to extend there were fundraisers and everything um and and Fishbourne Roman Palace is part of um uh, a wider charity called uh, mm. Sussex Past and they have several different sites around the kind of Chichester um Sussex area and 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 um they've never had the kind of uh financial standing or 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 kind of um or funding that that places like English Heritage and National Trust mm. have had um, they're much more smaller charity in that sense. Uh but this this obviously happening uh really hit charity overall. Uh luckily Fishbourne is open again um and it is having visitors. Um and and again it's a similar thing where it's a nice it, it can make it into a one way system. And I think uh from from how it's looking if a museum can make itself uh almost ikeaized <laughs> right um it's it's helping yeah um yeah and, and yeah um e- even if the fact that you're you're you know you haven't got somebody from the opposite direction coming straight at you you know most of the time you're probably gonna be looking at people's the back of people's heads so there's there's very little it, it, you know hopefully there should be very little actual kind of face-to-face uh interaction in that, in that sense mm-hmm. yeah and it's um, you know it's interesting that you know this is happening and obviously that so many of these sites have had to come up with you know other resources to put themselves out there because you know at the same time that bad weather and, and not upkeeping buildings has had a genuine impact in heritage there is and, and i'm I, i'm not saying this with pleasure but the fact that we or some of these places now have a control over how many people are in certain spaces at the same time, it's actually helping preservation and conservation of some spaces yeah. that used to be incredibly abused. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean abused in the harsh way, but you know, simply the traffic of people, constant yeah. and constant, 
you know, would help their deterioration. And obviously, you know, as as sad as it is, and as much as I hate to know that this is happening because of things like that, there are some positive aspects of of what happened. Um, You know, it's, it's helped a lot. Um, some institutions to think about layout, to think about security, not just of their staff, but the security of the building, you know, and or or the site or the elements that they are displaying. And you know, as much yeah. as some of these things are annoying, I think there could be some positive things to gain from this in museology, um, particularly. I've also seen this thing which I find really interesting, and I'm not too sure how I feel about it, but I've noticed a lot of sites have started doing virtual tours. Yes, and we, some, we sort of have as well. Yeah, some of them are really good, some others not so much. And obviously, it's not the same than actually being there and seeing the site. Uh, but I guess it's some form of way of allowing the public to, you know, gain access to um, some of these sites. And I mean, at the end of the day, we do the same with documents, you know, in archives, you cannot just go and touch absolutely every single thing that is out there. Because there are some manuscripts that just simply from you looking at them, they will disintegrate. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form that we should be doing that with our physical living heritage. But, you know, some some items, some things um, due to exposure, they, they do lose quality and we may not be able to preserve them from future generations. So maybe there is some of these technologies that can learn something from our behavior as, as the public and as consumers going to history sites um, that, you know, it's, yeah. it's useful. I mean, you yeah. have seen in, in recent years, a lot of, you know, museum collections becoming, you know, a, a, a digital collection that yeah. people can actually look through and things like that with, you know, high quality photos or videos and things like that but it was already you know sort of starting off in the last few years but i i found myself like i couldn't wait for it to like pick up on some of the some of the larger museum collections where yeah. i wish there was a huge collection online that you could actually search through so you know hopefully that kind of carries on speeds up which might be nice um you know yeah. obviously it's best to see things in person but you know, what can you do? Yeah. I think it's also nice to have that option for people who may not be able, you know, to travel miles and miles in the distance to be able to, you know, gain some knowledge from, you know, a completely different part of the world. Like I've seen people, you know, sitting in their living rooms in the UK um, learning about, you know, some of places in, in Japan that obviously have had to close or in Germany or, you know, the United States, whatever. And in a way, it's, it kind of helps that connectivity, doesn't it? Um, which mm. yeah, it has its dangers, of course. But I, I would like to try and think that there are some positive aspects, you know, there for the sake of knowledge and enhancing our knowledge of history, yeah. um, and also for the sake of preserving. And and these, it surprised me because these things have been so popular, particularly during the pandemic. It seems like you know, humans have been forced to be locked indoors, and they all haven't just been doing you know the virtual tour of disneyland <laughs> they've actually yeah. been you know doing things like this which are educational and that are engaging. lots of baking and... yeah and, and lots of baking of course to go yeah. to go with their lovely you know virtual history tours and whatnot <laughs> yeah. so you know and there the there population is population of nine months time is going to go up. <laughs> <laughs> there it. is there is such a thing as you know a, a potential there for things that you know we should be exploring and thinking about as as public historians i think but yeah obviously the impact of that is is not yet to be discussed cuz well we can only assess this for a while yeah it's it's the long term things that yeah. 
especially for museums and things like that like with a lot of businesses essentially uh, a lot of museums kind of you know have to function just as a money making business to keep going yeah, exactly. um, which is not necessarily yeah, yeah but uh you know with that impact on just a lot of of physical businesses um it's uh, going to be a long term thing to see how things shake yeah. out 100% um, and yeah. on that front then James could you tell us a bit about how the world of reenactment and and living history has been impacted by this whole thing because obviously you know I I, uh, I know that you're usually really busy yeah. with these things and I suspect you've probably been sitting at home thinking Ugh, yeah um, <laughs> are, we, are, we, are we allowed to swear yeah, <laughs> yeah. being a complete shit show <laughs> um to put it academically uh-huh. um yeah, it's it's well, it's just been non-existent, um, right. as as I'm sure you can imagine. Mm. Um, it's interesting. I actually did a, a virtual um, kind of conference talk at a, a medieval study day, and it was on reenactment and and our relationship with it. And one of my things actually was that this this pandemic has actually shown how. Um, how delicate, how how symbiotic re- reenactment and museums and the heritage sector have actually mm. become, and how delicate mm. how delicate this relationship is as well. So, um, museum uh, uh, re- reenactment, say they reenactment groups, they can effectively get their money from uh, two ways, mostly, particularly in this country, um, through a school visits, which a lot of reenactment groups do. So they'll actually have someone physically go dressed as uh where my group um a couple of the members go dressed as romans and they do talks uh to to school groups and they they take a lot of stuff with them and and children can you know try on armor and and hold uh tools and and everything else and stuff and and learn about different parts of of roman history that way Mm -hmm. um but the main part of it uh the the main income and and the the main bread and butter of a lot of groups are um uh, what are called reenactment shows, and most of the time they are uh, organised events through either local councils who are trying to celebrate some part of heritage in their, in their local area, or by um, heritage sites and museums um, that are doing either kind of weekday events or um, uh, kind of day day what we call meet and greets, um, which just have a few Roman soldiers turn up at somewhere like London Museum, and they. Uh, and they just talk and interact with the public. Um, mm. but they they are very popular, uh, and my group rely a lot on on this this form of of income. Um, one of the main ones we have, um, kind of religiously every year, is Chedworth Roman Villa. Uh, we go up for Father's Day weekend, um, and we spend Saturday and Sunday there. And it is kind of nothing but but gladiators, and we 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 put on about two or three gladiator shows over the course of a day and we also have a, a gladiator training school that we do with the kids and um, on Father's Day weekend we uh, get the dads involved as well for push-ups and sit-ups and jumping jacks and everything else and stuff <laughs> and they get to fight their kids which always goes marvellously well. Um, <laughs> I've witnessed and, this, it is true. <laughs> yeah and, and um, uh, to, lose, to lose that was obviously a massive hit to us from a financial point of view, but also a massive hit to um, to Chedworth um, Roman Villa itself as well. You know, they they we 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 can attract 
over that weekend uh, easily what what they would normally get um, leading up to that as a whole. So you know we we could have about five six hundred people there over the um, over the weekend or potentially five six hundred people each day, um, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of income uh, that 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 walks through the door in that sense. Um, so the pandemic's shown how much reenactment relies on um on museums but also or and, and heritage sites but also how how much uh heritage sites and museums rely on reenactment as well uh yeah. so it's, it's been yeah so it's just been a complete storm both ways um groups have been trying to do what they can and um where we've been able to kind of socially distance people have still been trying to meet up and and practice so we've been able to um over the summer when the uh things were relaxed a bit we were able to do some socially distanced gladiator training uh which was interesting um well we definitely had a focus on spear work that's for sure. um, <laughs> well, great because i yeah I, I, love, I love spears yeah i'm definitely i'm a spear fighter so um that was fine for me i was like yeah we can keep social distancing up as long as long as you want um just give me a pointy stick and i'm happy i'm happy um but we uh, so so yeah, groups have been trying to do what they can and, and they've also just been trying to survive as well. So anything kind of little that pops up and some sites have been trying to do what they can. So uh, we've fortunately um, been able to help with um, the Chichester, uh, not Chichester, um, Colchester Roman Circus. Um, and we've travelled up there um, completely voluntary as well, actually, just to help the site out. Where they've had things like uh, dressed like a Roman day, uh, over over like bank holiday and and um, things like that. Uh, so so groups have been trying to do what they can, but overall it's just been a complete write off. And some of the major events planned as well, things like um, Chalk Valley History Festival, which is a massive mm. massive yeah, multi period military event that happens normally over um, uh, yeah, kind of like yeah, late late June late June yes. early July. Uh, guest speakers, uh, World War Two fighter plane demonstrations, mock battles, all of that. Yeah. Um, of course, that's all been cancelled. And again, no, that is that brings in a huge amount of money. Um, that uh, that groups charge a lot of money to attend as well. Mm. Um, they did some virtual stuff, I believe, yeah, like virtual talks and things. They yeah, and the talk the talks are a bit more easy. I mean, Chalk Valley they they get in a lot of um kind of guest speakers and and yeah more kind of academic presences during the during the week mm. uh but during the actual weekend shows it's mostly the um it's, it's main focus is on um reenactment groups mm-hmm. um but it has um it, it's again in, in a similar way in, in that it's, it's highlighted and and it, it, it it's inviting debates on uh how museums go go forward it, it it's again highlighted um, issues that kind of very, very kind of academically based. Um, what reenactment is in in the modern world, and mm. seeing a Roman soldier, uh, seeing a Roman soldier with a, a face mask on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, first of all, you might not necessarily, you know, you wouldn't necessarily picture a Roman soldier with that. But it, it, it kind of boring. highlights. Yeah. Well, it it highlights it, it, this kind of fact that you know you're not you're not looking at 
a Roman soldier from no. the first century, from from the first century AD, you, you're looking mm. at you're looking at a modern interpretation of it. Yeah, that that this interpretation has had to abide by uh, new or, or, or modern standards, such as so you see gladiators fight, and normally those normally the weapons and the helmets used are of very high quality, and, and the swords, in fact, are normally better made than the actual swords that would have been used at the time. Because of mm-hmm. its because of its safety standard, yeah. Um, there's a financial side of things as well. Kits and equipment costs a lot of money. This is not mm. a it's not a cheap not a cheap hobby by any means. Um, so you normally you normally have you when when you buy things you normally buy it to the best quality you can be because obviously you don't want it to breaking and having to spend two yeah. three hundred pounds uh, to buy a new one or anything. Uh, so normally, the 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 equipment you see is normally much more well made and sturdier than what it would have been when it was more mass produced uh, two thousand years ago. Yeah. Uh, so already, when, when you're looking at uh, it's never going to be perfect rope, anyway. So. No, no, yeah. no, and and it just highlights that there's no such thing as as historical accuracy. Nope. Um, it's Not complete big... complete accuracy anyway. Yeah. No. no, and I'd I'd, I'd argue there's no. But accuracy is a very loose term to use anyway. Yeah. Um, to, to me, when somebody said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm historically accurate, they're just trying to make themselves sound good um, yeah. and, and yeah. meaningful. Um, <laughs> yeah. And if any reenactors are watching this, I don't care. Um, <laughs> and um, so, you're not, yeah, yeah you're, you're not looking at, at, a Roman, at a Roman soldier from 2000 years ago. You're looking at a guy who's portraying it to the best of his ability in line with a lot of modern modern influences that you just can't you just can't get away from and the fact yeah. that you now have to wear a face mask is is just such a physical uh reminder. it's a lot more obvious than the rest well it is yeah it, yeah. it is um uh and and so this it, is why it, we it, should all just about... we should all just uh be black death reenactors well you know I'm well, so and glad honest, that you've someone... seen, you've seen, yeah, but you've seen pictures of, of people wearing those masks in uh, yeah. supermarkets. I was just hoping someone opened that can of worms because <laughs> here I go with how the pandemic has impacted history, ladies and gentlemen. So yeah. I used to work in museum sites as well. I used to be a tour guide um, for a few years um, and whatnot. So, you know, I, I actually don't work there anymore so i haven't been impacted by that directly but um <clears throat> the the fun debates about different parts of history that have sparked up from this entire you know commotion it's it's incredible i mean for starters it saddens me to know that for people to take certain aspects of history seriously such as the history of medicine epidemics and the environment we have to find ourselves in a pandemic forcing mm-hmm. us to be at home and to think about how you know, us humans um, interact with each other and with the environment. But it's, I mean, obviously it's sparked all sorts of um, of topics from a historical and a humanities point of view um, that have been coming up over the last few few months. Obviously, um, a few publications such as the, you know, BBC History Magazine, History Extra, and a few other journals have had a sudden revival of the Black Death um, because, you know, seemingly in human minds, we cannot grasp any other events, um, you know, of, of this characteristic than huge, awful pandemics. You know, I spent months, and I mean months, arguing with people that what we were going through was nowhere similar to the Black Death or even the Spanish flu. 
uh, obviously it was still a commotion, it was still something to take seriously, but the escalation of some of these topics, the sensationalism of um, COVID for the use of political and historical agendas was exploited and is still exploited, you know, in, in degrees that baffle me every single day. Um, but, you know, this, this whole thing about the face masks and, you know, that the fact that I think a lot of humans suddenly realized that this was not uncommon, that we were so lucky to live in a world where we didn't have to take these precautions, but that we had to for, you know, hundreds of years before. Um, I think it really sort of helped people engage with their mm. not so distant past because, you yeah, know. Yeah, makes, you know, people were throwing around, you know, every company, everything was was saying, oh, I'm in these unprecedented times. Yeah, well, like, not yeah. so unprecedented, it's of, actually. It's, it's slightly comforting to know that, like, yeah, there's been a an epidemic every hundred years or so. Yeah, so give or take. We survived. Know. Yeah. So it's but it's been it's been really interesting seeing how that has been approached from different publications, from the public, you know, this whole obsession with the plague mask look and uh, and whatnot. It's just an excuse to wear yeah, a cool thing. Yeah, of course, you know, of course. I'm sure it's going to be the most popular Halloween costume as we are approaching the oh, 30th. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to be top notch sale this Why year. Not? But, you know, it's it's been it was kind of annoying that we had to wait for something like this to happen for, you know, the 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 new wave to come through and actually make us think about these things but also comforting to see that you know we can sort of learn from what's around us and actually you know look into it it's been quite inspiring seeing how a lot of interdisciplinary work has been happening because of the pandemic i've seen a lot of um uh sort of editions of like whether they are like collections of articles or journals or whatnot bringing scholars together to actually not just measure the the you know the scientific impact this is having in our world in terms of you know the, the the contagion and whatnot, but the actual impact this has in our society, in our political um, structures, in the economy, in in everything. And it's been you know good and bad for different reasons. Uh, but one that particularly touched me, and you know I'm very fond of, and I, I'm not trying to sort of you know promote anyone here, but it's it's a good friend of mine all the way in India. He's been actually contributing in a in a humanities project um, that uses comic books in order to inform people about the history of pandemics and you know health and safety measures and whatnot which is actually really inspiring because it's it's actually utilizing something that affects the public directly um, and letting the public engage with it in a such a familiar way that you know we hadn't really explored up to this moment in time. So there has been good things, bad things, obviously, there's always going to be a bit of both. But there has been, you know, a lot of movement in terms of how the pandemic may be related to, you know, so many other events that are happening in our society, in our world right now, like, you know, political events, we have some pretty important elections coming up soon, cough, cough, uh, do not inject yourselves with bleach, please. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, or just, you know, like, for example, that, how simple perception, you know, from a cultural point of view, and, and me as a cultural scholar, this fascinates me, how, from a cultural point of view, so many things have suddenly changed, and and some of them have changed for the good, and some others have changed for the worse, like, you know, now, if you just get a little bit of, I don't know, a sandwich scrape in the back of your throat and you have to cough in public to get it out. Everyone looks at you like there's some <laughs> form of public threat, you know, yeah. to society. And it's like, dude, uh, you know, what the hell? So, you know, it's it's there is such a thing as utilizing the things that are happening to us to educate people, but also to control the masses. And, yeah. you know, we need to be careful 
here and, and you know, academics and historians in particular and anyone working in the humanities really needs to be careful how we are using this yeah. um, because it is a political propaganda tool as well in some places. I will not name places in specifically, although I've just hinted to one of them right now. Um, and, and again, this is not to take away from the current panorama and the things that are happening, but, you know, like with anything that happens in history, it will be used and, and reused for specific purposes. We will yeah. not see it just yet because, you know, we're still living in it, but the aftermath of it all will have serious consequences. And I am sure there is a bunch of uh, memory scholars that are just literally waiting, waiting the years to come so they can actually talk and review how the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has affected our perception of culture and memory and how we remember it as a society. Mm. And what does that say about our cultural identity, about national views, about individual views and all of that. So kind know. of related, related to that, uh, you know, I, I can sort of see in the future, mm. you know, the, the, you know, to get a bit political here, how, how currently, especially within the UK, our current yeah. uh, government um, likes to sort of harken back to like the blitz, blitz spirit, spirit and things like oh, that, yeah. you know, like, you know, people who were born 20 years after the war still sort of in their cultural memory sort of feel like they mm -hmm. lived through the war and yeah. like the sort of memory of what life was like, you know, in that time is so skewed by sort of the political leanings and, and the way things are pushed to, to, you know, push a narrative. I can see the same thing happening in oh, yeah. in a few years to come. People will start saying like, you know, oh, I lived through the pandemic, you know, yep. and start, you know, using it for some sort of agenda. Uh, yep. I can't wait. One hundred percent. Watch us. Watch us in episodes to come. You know, years in the future to tell you part two about this. But um, yeah. you know, and, and so and, and and like anything else, it's it's always a wonder to when you hear. That no matter how bad it gets it's never the um you know the the, the leading parties or the government or, or whatever mm. the, the elite have, you know never do anything anything wrong um, yes and, yeah in the future it'll be oh yes we uh yeah. we guided you and and had securely led us through through this crisis sort of thing you know? yeah and, and, history yeah. will be uh, uh altered <laughs> Yes, but I mean, not just that. I mean, obviously, like I said, this this thing that's happening to us is having an impact into how our culture works right now. And, yeah. um, you know, for anyone listening out there who may not be very aware of it, I will use the example of the Black Death, not because I think it's relatable in the sense of the, the, this is not the same um, mm -hmm. in any way, shape or form. Uh, please do some research. Um, but it is true that, you know, through big traumatic experiences like this, that we suffer collectively as humans, things change. Yes. Um, whether they are for the better or the worse, that's not for me to judge. You know, I'm, I'm a historian. I don't judge history. I evaluate it. That's what I do. Uh, but there, there it will be changes. <laughs> there will be changes afoot. And I'm not talking about, you know, wearing a face mask or washing your yeah. hands, which you should be doing already, by the way. Um, you know, history has been developing soap for several hundreds of years, get familiarized <laughs> with it. You know, the history of cosmetic products and, and sanitation is fascinating. Take inspiration mm. from this and, and, you know, learn something about it. I'm sure a lot of chemists in the world will love you for it. Um, yeah, but you know what I mean? There, there is gonna be implications in people's minds, philosophies and whatnot. And at the end of the day, we will be projecting that into 
everything we do, our cultural products, our literature works, our music, you know, this is going to have an outlet. Humans need an outlet for this. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm kind of exciting. It's kind of exciting and at the same time concerning for someone like me to see what comes out of this. Because yes. um, obviously, you know, there is, there's going to be many different takes in there, but hopefully there will be those little sparks of well, you know, gold coming kind of, Kind of compare another comparison with the Black Death uh, that, that was kind of made earlier on. You don't hear it so much anymore, but it was kind of an, an optimistic thing with people saying after the Black Death, you know, things got better because there were a lot of dead uh uh, peasants so oh, the ones God. that were left could kind of you know had a bit yes. more leverage on the landowners for yeah, their labor was and, much more valuable and people yeah. were saying the same thing might happen here La the, our labor might become more valuable and things might get better in for, for workers and things well, like that but, I mean, you know unfortunately i think people are not as optimistic about that further into this no thing. you know as much as we have that recognition to the um key workers and all that i don't think you know we can it, for ourselves ultimately comes down to just an applause once a week yes. it seems yeah. rather yeah. than yeah. any real concrete yeah. <laughs> changes but, in, you know in, there is the positive there has been other other direct impacts that, um, again, will have a repercussion that we are still unable to see, and particularly in the field of history and academia, which is the impact this has had in academic institutions. I'm talking particularly about universities. I'm talking about colleges. I'm talking about you know research foundations and things like that, and how a lot of those jobs that were already pretty insecure in a lot of places in the world have just vanished. Mm -hmm. And that is dangerous, people. In case you didn't know, um, you know, we may not be good with maths and, and science and make a cool new toy that you can use to make your life easier, yeah. but without people like us, without all of the people that work in the humanities and in the arts, by the way, um, yes. which which history has a lot to owe to the arts. Yes. Um, we cannot make it as humans. Um, it's it's physically impossible. It's essential, yeah. And, uh, and, it, and it's been overlooked in recent years more and more so anyway. You know, so everything's much. about STEM, which, you know, it's important, but that's what's focused on because that's what makes the money. Yeah. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, but, you know, culture oh, and heritage gets overlooked and it's happening on a greater pace now because we're, prioritizing as a society and but like i was saying just you know a few moments ago earlier in this podcast you know all those people sitting at home some of you may work in the stems some of you may be scientists some of you may not that actually were entertained by those people working in the arts or gained mm. some knowledge by those people working in the humanities it, it doesn't come from thin air we still mm. need those positions particularly in times of crisis you know it's so easy to lose knowledge in situations like this and and we've seen it through history um, you know, we don't need to go through, you know, dramatic things like the fall of the Roman Empire. But, you know, even yeah. through the Black Death, we know just from an architectural point of view, how many uh, masons and workers were lost to the plague. That, you know, yeah, I mean, time to, you lose to, expertise. Yeah, exactly. You know, to, to regain back that skill. And sure, you know, we have some great pieces of, of art and architecture coming from those times. And then we move on to the Renaissance and everything is wonderful. But those people that went through that, had the power um, in their minds to change the world that came forward. You know, so many revolutions and, and changes in thought that came from that period were because of mm. those people with the knowledge that were able to live, to survive, and to pass that knowledge and to think and to move things forward. You know, there is such a thing as fixing society. And for that, you kind of, 
the people that learn about society. You need, yeah, you need the foundation there. You need to put the effort in. You know, exactly. like when in terms of crisis and things change, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, history progresses forwards and things get better. You know, you need to put the effort in. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't just happen naturally. So, yeah, 100%. A, a key part of, of, you know, what we are as humans kind of is uh, could get overlooked. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not just talking about institutions closing down and therefore all of those people who would go and be educated there not having that opportunity. I'm talking about jobs becoming redundant. You know, a lot of the academic positions that I would be able to work in or someone like James would be able to work with or or Alex, they will not exist anymore because the system will get efficient and think, oh, well, a robot can do this for you. Yes. And I'm all and it was happy hard enough for, as it was, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I'm all happy to, you know, you go go ahead with innovation and technology. But, you know, just as a point of view and, and some perspective for you guys, I have some data from different places. Um, Australia is quite severely damaged by how uh, this whole pandemic has affected the humanities. Um, they are having massive strikes. They've been having massive strikes for some time. There has been a lot of movement over there in the unions and academics actually trying to retain their positions. And I'm not talking just about the casual stuff. I'm talking about the permanent stuff. You know, mm. the UK had a, a very long strike that went on literally up to days before we went into lockdown. Um, yep. That probably made the whole academic system this year an absolute mess. But it was necessary because we had, you know, academic professors that had to work at the bar to make yeah. you know to to be able to 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 earn a living and this is not just about earning a living it's about you know if that person has to end up giving up their job and working at the bar you are not going to receive your education and and yes. that's an opportunity lost um with that said I'm not done yet. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) It was very kind of many academic institutions, particularly publishers, to suddenly open up um, journals and things like that for people to read, which obviously has opened a completely different kind of worms, which is the fact of, oh, you can afford to give us all of this free knowledge now during a pandemic when you're not making money. But when you're making money, you're making us pay extortionate prices to simply obtain information. What? So, you know, that's been really interesting. Obviously, a lot of publishers have also suffered from the general pandemic uh, process, but it it, it was quite hilarious seeing some big names going like, oh, well, now that you are all at home, sitting quietly and have nothing better to do, I'll give you access to all of these thousands of journals that normally you wouldn't be able to. In, wow. in a lot of ways, yeah, that this pandemic, you know, in other sectors and things as well, has been kind of a, uh, for a pun not intended, but a, a mask off moment, yeah, sort of 100%. showing that like how kind of things are arbitrary and, and you know, it doesn't need to be this way, but 100%. gonna do it anyway. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not just saying that because I think it's disgusting because it is disgusting, you know, as a, as a PhD student, um, and, and James can relate to this, and any other student out there or simply anyone who wants to get information, sometimes yeah. you need to go I mean, through It's so harder many... if you're not a student. Exactly. You yeah. need to go through so many loopholes to just to get, you know, a source, a source that may be critical for you understanding what you're doing, what you're researching. And sometimes to do that, you need to spend a ridiculous amount of money. You know, I'm talking about 20 pounds for an article that is 10 pages, temporary access, not even permanent. 
okay that's ridiculous you tell me what kind of person <laughs> trying to you know become anything or or studying or or just someone who's even outside of academia can afford those rights it's it's insane but you know it's, it's not just that yeah. it's, it's become very obvious during this process that there are certain topics that are interesting and therefore we will invest in them and certain topics who will be relegated to when oh we are not in the middle of a pandemic because they're not yeah. so urgent or important where, so, where, you know it's all well and good saying like you know we have to prioritize everything's limited but mm, who's making the decision what's exactly. valuable and what's not like exactly so can we trust know, those decisions yeah, there is there is a lot of reflection to be made there by academics, scholars, and the people on the outside. And you know, like I said previously, history always has an agenda. The people producing history and those thoughts do have an agenda as well. You know, this is the first thing that you will be taught on your first year of university, I hope, uh, which is historical bias. It doesn't just happen in ancient texts; it happens yes. right now. Um, yeah. So, you know, obviously, I have my own historical bias right here. I'm, I'm being quite honest about my historical bias, mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's it's something that's become really apparent um, that you know a lot of these things don't necessarily have to be the way we are making them be, and we are exploiting history and historical knowledge for the sake of money and in my opinion we are all part of history therefore we should all be able to participate in that history that's the reason why we you know invest in reenactment groups why we go to museums why we do these things so you know yeah. people people need to get an edge there and actually start fighting for for their own knowledge and education and, and the freedom of that knowledge and education that we should all you know yeah. And, uh, and even you know just on a more base level just as entertainment as well you know oh yeah, 100%. Like, like, and even that has you know in some cases it's been a bit of a boom for certain entertainment industries and things mm. like that but then more recently uh again our government has uh sort of been pushing this uh this idea that well arts and things like that are not going to be viable jobs now yeah, or in the future potentially you know, for however long so why don't you all retrain yeah all you teach your students retrain and become mechanics and plumbers very useful yes. in the pandemic thank you all mechanics and plumbers for having been there for all of those people stuck in their homes with emergencies during the pandemic but yeah. we can't you know we cannot just have thousands of people just turning to one trade or another is is not going to fix our society it will fix yeah. our sinks temporarily <laughs> our break um but you know at the same time we've seen how during this period and this is what i mean with how our culture changes how many people have become self sufficient because they've had to you know mm -hmm. if this is something that we're going to have to experience long term a lot of people will learn how to fix their own sinks and how yeah, to you know yeah. fix their electrics and whatnot so uh, things are going to change and, and people need to start owning to this responsibility, to this social responsibility and to this power. You know, the pandemic is awful and it's not something that is good for us in any way, shape or form, but at the same time, there's good things that we can take from it and, and we should be trying to think about them and, and pushing them forward. I mean, one of the things that, and I think is probably my favorite thing of this whole pandemic situation is the amount of people who have been at home with access to the internet and by donating their kind of time to just figuring out what's going on with certain maps they found so many archaeological discoveries like the news has been buzzing we've mm. we've found this we found that we're investigating this we're investigating that because people have had the time and you know ability to look into these things and you know that is yeah there, there are there are some you know small wins we've got here yeah. like you know we say you, know, you say about people coming becoming self-sufficient things like that people kind of 
taking up other hobbies, things like that, yeah. uh, that are historical yeah. in all those people that have been doing those GPS investigations through their homes and geofess. Yeah. I don't know how you did it, but congrats. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's awesome. It's you know, they're, they're... Like, uh, something you know that that I'm quite involved in. You know, like crafts and things like yeah, that, that historically course. related. A lot of people will have you know uh, taken up these sort of hobbies in their mm. in their time at home, things like that. A lot of people have set up their own little online businesses, which. I've done over the past couple of years already and f from that I, I've seen a bit of a boom in that like mm. over this this summer um, my sales for for the, the things I make online has been up by a double uh, over the last couple of years in comparison um, so there's a positive there you know I, I'm seeing um, uh, all three of us right before the pandemic went to Torm, the original yes. reenactors market. Yeah. Um, they're currently uh, doing a thing where uh, they do the virtual reenactors yes. market, which uh, I'm seeing uh, them sharing around online, where they're kind of trying to to point people in the direction of people's online shops and things like that, so that people who make their living on on doing these historical crafts or re for reenactors and things like that, um, they can still make a living because you know they they will be affected the people that rely on going to events and selling in markets and and at reenactment events and things like that they'll be negatively affected obviously but you know thankfully this is kind of helping a lot of them who didn't necessarily have a website or a very good one you know a lot of them will be modernizing now and yeah. probably finding that they're selling a lot more online uh, at least i know i am um, so sure. uh, hopefully that side of things helps because like you were saying a lot of knowledge can get lost like mm -hmm. if people who have put the time in to learn these these historical crafts which are almost lost to time already in a lot of cases you know there's not many sources and things are kind of like handed down from <laughs> master to apprentice still in some cases which yeah. is kind of amazing if people who still do that you know aren't able to do that as a viable career then uh those sort of things will just die out more and more so hopefully kind of pushing things to be sold online more you know even though it's nice to have physical things being sold in person uh, it's 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 good that um there's actually a way for people to carry on yep. uh, hopefully it works out uh, 100% we'll see obviously like with everything yeah. else one more thing i would like to talk about briefly before we finish cuz as usual i'm getting to the end of my time but here you go it's obviously with this online presence um, lots of things have changed. One of the biggest things I think that's changed, um, particularly for academics and historians this year, has been all of those conferences and seminars that have got cancelled or have moved online. Um, and, you know, again, that has its pros and cons in the different ways. I guess it becomes cheaper because you don't need to travel and, again, do the expense and, and time that that requires to participate in some of these events, which, you know, are, are generally where a lot of these ideas that are helping shape modern thought happen, and they are not always easily accessible. Um, mm. But you know, these places are finding, um, you know, a new home online, and they are proving to us that it doesn't need to be, you know, three thousand people in an auditorium feeling very small and very disconnected. You can actually do that from your home, and in a strange way, having to go through that struggle and having to set it up and having to be online is it seems to be forcing people to be more interactive, which puzzles me it's it's kind of backwards but <laughs> i know yeah. 
it puzzles me, but you know, and it happens. Um, so I think that's been quite positive because particularly small organizations that don't always have the budget for people to go or make big things, you know, that they've been having to, well, make, make their way around, um, these, these events in a different way. And, and this online presence is really helping. And I have found so many support groups and focus groups and, you know, help groups to get people through the pandemic with, with this sort of research and, and academic help and whatnot. Um, I would like to think that, you know, as much as there's been some bad things that I've gen genuinely encouraging everyone to think about, um, because it's very important stuff, there has been, you know, so much solidarity amongst peers. And I think that's mm. really important, you know, some, some academic fields, particularly history, particularly in the UK, particularly some branches of history in the UK are so incredibly cutthroat. Um, you know, you kind of feel like you're talking to a room full of enemies rather than colleagues at stages. Um, this mm. is not just my personal experience. I'm sure James can tell you his, his own. Um, you know, it can be very competitive. But at the same time, I think this has showed us all that at the end of the day, we're humans. We're in the same boat. And, you know, if you have that manuscript that only you have and no one else has and someone needs it, it's actually not so bad that you share it with with the other kids and you play nicely. And like I said, mm -hmm. it's brought some very unlikely people together to make some really, really amazing things and help each other and, and, and the if publications. I, yeah. If I, if I can build on that as well, there's a, a, a new kind of conference, uh, little phenomenon thing uh, called Twitter conference. Oh yes, Twitter, I was going to well. say that. And, yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, and I, I um, took part in one a few months ago. <laughs> uh very very interesting but the, the the beauty of it is is because it's all linked by a hashtag it's so open to well anyone who uses twitter um yeah. if, if you're wondering how it how it works it's actually uh, a very very good system you or, or by user conference i i took part in as as the example uh you make a thread of 12 12 tweets uh and they're only about 260 characters long each uh, but at each one and you number them so they're all in order but at the, uh, at the start of each one you use the hashtags so they're all linked to the same hashtags to the same page and, and, and everything else um, and you can add pictures and, and, and whatnot as well to each one I think we had the limit of about one picture per, per tweet if, if we wanted to if you wanted to go up to that um, but they were very, very interesting, and they're, they're almost ideal for wider audiences because, you know, you, you're trying to get through a whole conference talk, and I was, I was talking about um, uh, reenactment re in uh, real life reenactment, but also kind of uh, digital reenactment, as I call it in terms mm. of video games and everything and, and mm. being that soldier or that warrior in, in something like Bannerlord. Um because you've only because you're trying to do all that in twelve tweets and each tweet is, is kind of on a different section, you've got to be so concise uh and so deliberate in what you're saying that it, it just eliminates all the waffle. Yes. So anyone anyone who who's from the outside of it and, and not necessarily, you know, used to that kind of academic background or, or anything else or, or just wanting to get a, a nice glimpse into it these are ideal because they're so succinct and, and concise you can meet you know even from the first word uh you immediately see what they're saying mm. uh and it's 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 a great yeah and it's it's a great way of opening 
academia up to to a wider audience mm. to wider that's audience. interesting mm. yeah yeah i thought it was a very clever concept and i thought you know <clears throat> that's that's pretty cool and it, it gave me the impression it was fairly interactive as well you know, from what James was saying and, and other examples I've seen, you know, the feedback, people have actually been engaging a fair bit. So, yeah. you know, particularly during this time of isolation, as much as I'm not the biggest fan of social media, thank goodness for social media being able to be put to good use yeah. um, and actually being, you know, there as a, as a tool and as a resource that we can so utilize for our own benefit um, yeah. rather than just, you know, all the hatred that goes around it sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like I said, I think there's been good things and bad things coming out of this whole pandemic, not just for the world in general, but for, you know, history particularly and, and the humanities. And, um, you know, it's it's still too soon to know uh, what's going to happen with all of this. Yeah. You know, the future is unknown. We don't really know what we're walking into or or what's going to become of it. You but... can make some guesses, but uh, in my case, they're not terribly optimistic ones <laughs> no uh, and and i think that's perfectly justified you know the, the mood of 2020 i think there is a bunch of memes and again historians of the future are gonna have a riot looking at the memes of 2020 i mean the gold the absolute gold that has come out of this year yeah. just alone you know it's it's been great um you're welcome uh us from 2020 but um you know it's it's it is a time of uncertainty and it's it's strange, but you know, as much as I don't want to invoke the blitz spirit, because that's not really what that is about. You know, we do have two thousand plus years of history um, that show actually mankind has gone through worse, and yeah. we've recovered. It may not be the type of recovery that you wish humans, but unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Um, you know, we just we just kind of have to learn. That these things happen, and um, I think it's a very big and valuable lesson for humanity. You know that that the past does repeat itself. Kids learn something about it. Yes, yeah. And, um, yeah. and unfortunately, we don't always learn from it. Uh, no, at least but, not on a on a wider cultural level. No, <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a wider there's a wider element of you know no matter how far we we advance or whatever else, whenever nature wants to throw a screwball our way, yeah, yeah. yeah we can't. It always it. hits. Yep. We can't stop always, it. We always strike out. We can only learn from it. And, you know, for all those kids um, whose history programs are underfunded, for all those people that cannot get access to this information, you know, for all of that, um, for all those people who didn't have the time to look into this before and who were looking for an excuse, this is your time. Um, you know, the, the ideas of tomorrow are, are forged in today. So um, I really hope that as much as this is our first session and it's been a, a bit brief, and not about a very pleasant subject. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can all sort of look introspectively at at history and the power that individuals have, so we can move forward in times like this and, and yeah. see that you know there is there is actually good stuff we can learn from this, and and there is good things happening from this as well. So yeah, I mean. We've started a podcast. Exactly. Uh, you know. <laughs> That's another good thing. So yeah, you know. <laughs> people have got time at home, start a podcast, start writing, yeah. start a YouTube channel, do something yeah. like that. You know, do something, share something, let let that knowledge go on because yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we, we all have that power. So that's yeah. um that's what we're here for. And like I said at the beginning, that's what new history is here for, to to bring that element to your to your living rooms so um unfortunately that's the end of things today thank you so much alex for being on board as usual and james for joining us 
Um, thank you for anyone listening, and please stick to uh, you know with with what we're doing here because we have more people coming to talk to us about all sorts of things. I promise things will not be as grim. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll focus more the, on historical in the, topics in particular in the future. In some of our future episodes, yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, uh, really looking forward to it, and um, see you on the next one. Yeah. Bye. Bye.